was Madiba by Ryan Porter and the West Coast Get Down, featuring Jumani Smith on trumpet, Kamasi Washington on tenor sax, Brandon Coleman on keyboards, Miles Mosley on bass, and Tony Austin on drums. It comes from Porter's new album Live in Paris at New Morning, which is out this week on the World Galaxy label. Ryan Porter is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello. I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the OSIRIS network. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll help us to create more and better content, so become a subscriber if you can. OSIRIS has just premiered a new show, Past, Present, Future, Live, which is unlike any of our other podcasts. It's part interview and part performance. Every week, the hosts will be talking to an artist about their past, from their first musical memories to their first paid gig, and the present, and then the future, including their ambitions and future projects or goals. And at the end, the artist plays a few exclusive live tracks that have defined their musical journey. The performance videos from each week's show will be posted on the OSIRIS YouTube page. 
first episode features Eric Krasno from the band Soul Live, who's also a solo artist, so check that out if it sounds interesting to you. So, Ryan Porter. If you've seen Kamasi Washington live, you've seen Ryan Porter. He's the trombonist, standing directly to Kamasi's left on stage. They've been friends since they were kids, growing up in L.A. together and playing on all kinds of projects. They were in Snoop Dogg's touring band together, and they played on the sessions for Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly, and of course all of Kamasi's records, the epic Heaven and Earth, Harmony of Difference, the soundtrack to Becoming, the Netflix documentary about Michelle Obama. He's also played on records by other members of the West Coast Get Down, like Mosley, Cameron Graves, and Brandon Coleman. And he's made multiple albums of his own, including The Optimist, Force for Good, and Spangalang Lane, which is a collection of children's music, something that we talk about in this interview. He's also done a lot of session work, both solo and as a member of the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra, playing on records by Diana Krall, Michael Buble, Nick Cave, Quincy Jones, Anthony Hamilton, and Leon Russell. I talked to Ryan Porter on Wednesday, June 3rd. The interview had been booked a week earlier, and by the time it happened, the protests surrounding the killing of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police had gotten well underway across the country. A lot of cities were under curfew if they hadn't already been that way because of COVID-19. So, to talk about music with a guy who made an album of children's music and who made two other albums with the titles The Optimist and Force for Good almost felt like a kind of really dark irony. I mean, is this a particularly optimistic time in American history, the summer of 2020? I don't think it is, and I'm straight, white, and middle-aged. If I was young or not white, I would not feel especially optimistic about life in this country now or in the immediate future. But Ryan Porter is an optimistic guy. He's clear-eyed about the environment he grew up in and how it shaped him, and the world he lives in, and what he can accomplish or put across with his music. But I'm not going to misrepresent the conversation we had. We talked about art and creativity and making a career as a musician and how that's not just about taking every opportunity you can. Sometimes it's about realizing that you don't necessarily want to exist on a certain level and taking a step or two back. Like everyone else I've ever had on this show, Ryan Porter is a really smart, perceptive, creative guy, and I think you're going to enjoy our conversation. Before that, though, I'm going to play one more piece of music, as I always do. This is The Psalmist, the opening track from his album The Optimist. Listen to that, and afterwards you'll hear my conversation with Ryan Porter.
Hi, Ryan. Hey, so. Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. How you doing? All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where yeah, are you? I'm in D.C. Oh, well, you're in... actually in, in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what's going I'm on here. there? Is it, uh, is the, the whole protest in D.C., has it bled through to Alexandria, or what's going on there? Uh, not really. No, it's, it's definitely a different type of neighborhood over here. I mean, it's, it's really uh, not over here at all. <laughs> you, know, so, <laughs> you know, it hasn't reached over here. I don't know who works over here or who lives over here, but it, it definitely isn't reached this area. Not, not from what I've seen, everybody's still under quarantine. <laughs> you know, so it's... <laughs> It's, it's uh, not chaotic at all, which I appreciate. You know, uh-huh. you do, know uh, uh, but do you have family there? Well, what's happening is um, my girlfriend. She's finishing school here, and she's been uh, doing her uh, doctorate residency at the Superior Court here in DC. And if she gets done uh, at the end of July, and that's when I'm moving back to the West Coast. So we've only been here since April just while she finishes up school. And I'm usually on the road. I'm supposed to be getting ready to play the Hollywood Bowl or doing something right now. So, you know, I'm usually never here, you know, so it, it tends to work out. But uh, I, I don't have any family here. Oh, okay, you know, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. So it's just the two of you? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and so how, we, how locked down was Virginia? Like, I mean, because I'm in New Jersey, and New Jersey was locked down for starting in March basically yeah yeah well you know what happened was we did a national tour with Kamasi and that started on Valentine's Day and during the tour there was absolutely no sign whatsoever of the coronavirus (laughs) I'm talking about we played for thousands of people every night not one mask in the crowd and as soon as I get back on March the 16th it was immediate lockdown like Alexandria was very locked down. Like, uh, you know, I was just watching the news. You know, it was, wasn't. It was kind of like uh, just really heavy here in Virginia, to where it was, it was definite uh, store closures. You know, no nothing open at all. You know, uh, face masks required everywhere. You know, so it was it was immediate. You know, so. Ever since March 16th, I've been here under quarantine, just watching the news and watching what's unfolding, you know, every day. Yeah, I, uh, it's funny, because I started a job on March 15th, and then on the 18th, they told us, well, on the day I came in, they said, okay, on Wednesday is going to be our last day. And so, so it's actually the 16th, yeah, that was the day I started. And then two days later, we were all working from home. So, isn't that crazy? That, that's <laughs> something else, man. <laughs> I mean, it's like such a huge pendulum. Cause I, I mean, I had so much stuff, so much positive stuff on the calendar for this year, and to see it all just kind of up in smoke. Well, not really, but just kind of get pushed back until the, the, the smoke clears is uh, one of the things that was. Uh, part of the pendulum that was kind of tough to to deal with, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
because it's one thing, just like you, you, you start a new job and you get your, your momentum set up to do that, and then now you're working from home, you know? So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've interviewed a number of people from your circle. Like, I've interviewed Cameron, I've interviewed Miles Mosley, I've interviewed Thundercat, and I've interviewed Dwight Tribble. So, nice. kind of tell me your story. Like, how long have you known all these guys? Okay, so um, my story is that I grew up in South Central, L.A. Um, I was born in 79, so it was like, uh, I, I just take the picture of the timeline for you. I uh, got into music when I was five with my grandfather. I didn't start playing trombone when I was five, but he was a, a mechanic and a, just a record collector and just an avid lover of music. So uh, my when I was five, I was always hanging out with grandpa. He let me know about all of the records and just uh, let me be the DJ. And I I kind of uh, learned all of the instruments, you know, and he was, he was educated about a lot of uh, things. So as far as the instruments, so I, I knew what sound was which, and he kind of helped me distinguish that. And when I got to uh, elementary school, then my mother got me lessons with a guy named Henry Turpo, and he was in Inglewood. And he uh, had students coming by, he had heavy, he was like a, a older gentleman who played trumpet. Mm-hmm. And he gave back and he set up lessons in his garage where he would have a lot of students. So I started taking with him when I got to be 10 in the fifth grade. So uh, I already knew who my like my uh, big uh, people I wanted to be like. I love J.J. Johnson. I like Matt Adderley. I, I was exposed to Miles, and it took a while to grow into those guys. But as far as the blues, which was primarily being played at my house all the time, like because my uh, grandparents were from Mississippi, you know, so mm-hmm. there was always this like the gut bucket you know, uh, blues, you know. Uh, so I was being exposed to a lot of music at home. And by the time I got to junior high school, I started to, uh, you know, really focus on the trombone. So once I, I started to, and I stayed right around the corner from my high school. I went to George Washington High School. And uh, I had this band director who was super amazing, Fernando Pullum. He was there and he exposed us to a lot of stuff. And one of the people that he exposed us to why exposing us to a lot of people in the jazz community that were educators was Reggie Andrews. And Reggie Andrews' name probably came up a lot with uh, Thundercat and I'm sure with the other guys as well. But what Reggie would do is a multi-school band every Tuesday and Thursday. And that would help us to get acquainted with more of the students that weren't necessarily going to our high school at the time. Mm-hmm. And this was at, this took place at Lock High School in Watts. So that's where I met. Uh, I met Kamasi before then at Jazz America, which was another program for kids who wanted to learn improvisation from the wide uh, range of jazz educators that we had in Los Angeles. But Reggie Andrews set up a multi-school band where the high school students on Tuesdays and Thursdays could come and play this big band music that was written by the legacy of guys that we had in L.A. So we played Gerald Winston charge. We played for Tascott chart. We played uh, a lot of different arrangements from the community of musicians that were contributing to the program. Mm-hmm. So we did little city concerts and stuff like that. Terrence Martin was in the band. That's where I really got to know Terrence. We were about all about, 
I was 14 when I met Terrence Martin. And um, Steven Bruner and Ronald Bruner, a little younger than us, so they weren't actually in high school. They were in junior high school, but they were still kind of part of the band, you know, because they were playing like grown men anyway. So uh, Kamasi was part of the band. Uh, we had an amazing trombone player named Isaac Smith who was part of the band. Uh, just, just a real, real great opportunity to network. Uh, Cameron Graves and Taylor Graves were part of the band. Robert Miller, uh, amazing drummer. You know, it was he. He really had a group of. Um, really talented kids. Tyrese Gibson was actually in the program with Reggie Andrews, um, you know, that passed through his program. And uh, him, along with a, a wide range of, of uh, people in L.A., kind of helped to, to bring the kids who were more uh, further along in their improvement with the music together. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so a lot of the guys that had places, like Billy Higgins, he had a club. You know, and that was the world stage in Lamert Park. And at the time, the social climate in the 90s, I'm talking about 94, that's when I met Terrence and all these guys around 94 and 97. It was uh, just after the riots, you know, so it was like even more precautious as far as there was no gray area to whether or not you wanted to be a gang member or be a good student. You know what I mean? It wasn't like you could be a great student on the weekdays and then on the weekend you could be, you know, hanging out with the local gang. It was like those dudes who even tried that were dying. There was no gray area. So I'm just saying all that to say that the the safety net that Billy provided, that Reggie provided, that Fernando and all of the rest of the great contributors provided was a small little safety net, safe haven. You know, and Billy Higgins kind of created that Lamert Park amongst the other great contributors there in that that community. But uh, that was a lot of our first gig playing at the World Stage. That's where Terrence played the first time. That's where a lot of us congregated and just uh, were able to hang outside. Because where I grew up, I couldn't hang out in the front yard, ride my bike like most kids, and all of that. I had to stay in the house because it's bush. You know, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like yeah, and uh, it, it's. Uh, kind of a gang war going on in the undercurrent of everything all the time where between the ages of 14 and, and 18 a lot of like young guys like ourselves were targets so it was, it was great that we had that that safe haven and that that community of people to really kind of be conscientious of that and give us something to do something that we wanted to do so I'm, I'm really grateful for having the opportunity to be around such uh, talent you know, and, and for those guys to have such great parents. Kamasi's father is a great man. His mother, uh, I know all of these guys' parents, because we were so young that they were the ones dropping them off. You know what I mean? So I got to meet Terrence's mother. I, I know all of their parents, and they did a great job. They put in the time, along with my mother, bringing them to all of these rehearsals. And Reggie Andrews, he had a little Mercury band. And he would pick us up individually. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I'm talking about a van full of kids and drive all around L.A., taking us, taking us up, taking us home, buying us McDonald's or whatever it was, and never ask for anything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can't give them anything. Like, people have tried to give them stuff. <laughs> he won't take it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it, it's the heart behind that type of giving that changes 
why you do the music and the level of, uh, you know, just just uh, what, what are you trying to get? It's, it's so, it, it becomes a legacy of just not just the music, but the whole humanitarian spirit and the walls that that break down inside of the music, you know? So it, it really um, makes it to where the people who were involved with these programs have a huge responsibility to carry on this legacy, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that's that's what I uh, got out of the whole West Coast get down community or whatever anybody wants to call it. That's what I call it. But it's really a legacy of people who who uh, created and turned this whole told me how to turn the pain into medicine. You know, and that's what I feel like uh, Herbie talks about. You know, in his music and in his uh, way of perceiving the music and, and Don Coltrane brushes over it and, and his whole legacy of force for good. And, and, and there's so many musicians that really have left behind this legacy of uh, how to take that pain and the frustration of things and put it back into their art and, and leave behind some of the things that really shaped the world and the music. It's, it's amazing. It's so magical. I know you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, when and how did you choose the trombone and who are the guys on your instrument who inspire you because i mean you mentioned jj johnson and like i mean only only like hardcore jazz fans are into him or julian priester or gratian monker so like who were the guys for you you know you know what i think that my major influence is uh I'll start from the top. What got me into playing the trombone was like when I was saying when I was younger, I was sitting with my grandpa and he's a mechanic and he's checking out records and I'm trying to listen to him. Uh, and just I gravitated towards this one record that he put on by J.J. Johnson called uh, Neo. It's on the Proof Positive record. I think that was Impulsive at the time. Uh, yeah, but he uh, put that record on and I had to hear it from the beginning to the end. And I had to know what that instrument was and all, everything. It just sounded, it painted this whole magical thing for me as a kid, you know. And uh, that became one of my favorite songs. And I remember asking him to put that record on all the time. And when uh, I got the chance to actually see a trombone, that's when I was more captivated and uh, more just intrigued by by it, like it was something cool. Like, it, you know, I mean, it was just always this thing that kind of was a mutual thing that I liked as much as you know, I felt like people say that the instrument chooses them mm-hmm. I feel like the trombone kind of that voice chose me you know and I was some young kid that was running around the yard and then I heard it and then I just stopped dead in my tracks and had to always hear it you know <laughs> it, just, I, it just really uh, intrigued me so much that you know I was even now I'm love the trombone more than I did when I was that age so it, the more I look into it, the more I uncover things. So when I, I think about who are my favorites in contribution, it's the, it's the guys that really love the instrument. And you can hear it when they play because trombone, and I, I'm sure you can agree with this, has the uh, kind of the reputation of being a, a clumsy instrument. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm not saying that, like, but, like, from the tailgate side of it, it's great, and I, I appreciate all the contributions from New Orleans and everything, but 
it's a thin line between that and circus music, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> and trying to like let people know that this is something that deserves to be on the front line and be taken seriously. JJ is kind of that pivotal person for me who took the technology, I mean, took the, was a technician and really brought some clarity to that. But um, when guys don't take the time, it, it kind of sounds circusy, you know. And I, I think you can tell the guys like uh, Elliot Mason. I love listening to Elliot Mason play. You know, he, he's a technician, and at the same time, he's definitely, um, you know, really role-playing and being multiple instruments in his mind, but still executing it on the trombone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I look for. I, I like Fred Wesley for that. Fred Wesley is like, uh, to me, like Marvin Gaye on trombone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He's like, he's role playing in his mind, getting this great singer, and he's still executing it on trombone. It yeah. is it is a, a uniquely vocal instrument. I feel like more so than the trumpet, more so than a saxophone. You know. Oh, oh, definitely, definitely. And I feel like with the slide and with the amount of octaves, because you have a few different. The range of it is so vast that um, you know you can get up high and then you can get way down low. And I think that just having all of those options and uh, you you can really. Uh, interpret melodies and imitate the vocals a little bit better with all of the bends and slides especially with a you know a lot of guys like to play with the plunger too so with a combination of that like Al Gray you can get it talking and to where it sounds like like a voice you know and that's that's always been something that that's been uh, a, a beautiful thing to have that amount of virtuosity on on a horn so I, I like a lot of these players now too I mean I for a long time, and still today, I will watch all of the Grammy, uh, Grammy band audition tapes on YouTube. <laughs> you uh-huh. know, <laughs> and just see what young guys are really playing, and, and just not even see who's really playing, but see almost what flavors, new flavors are out there. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's really how I look at it because it's, it's no better than anything. Nobody's better than anything. It's like it's a whole big grocery store. Of, amazing food so i would just look to to uh on instagram and different social media sites and just really trying to look in and see who's really um who's really making a uh who has like a, a distinctive type of style you know? mm-hmm. so uh there's it, a lot of guys that i really like uh of course andre hayward is one of my favorites you know uh Wyclef gordon of course i like bill watcher i like uh, Frank Rock, you know, I like Conrad Herwig. I like, like it's it's really the beautiful part about music is that like it's so in the trombone as well is that it's such a hard thing to play. It's not an easy instrument that if you can play it, if you can bring that clarity and really, uh, you know, say what you want to say on that thing. I, I'm really just. I'm, I'm giving you some love. That's how it is. That's how trombone players do. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh-huh. Now, I know Stephen and Ronald were both in Suicidal Tendencies, and Cameron was in Jada Pinkett Smith's band, and Kamasi was in Snoop's band, and I think Terrace was too, and a couple other guys. So mm-hmm. what's your secret past gig? 
I mean, playing the trombone, were you like in a ska band or something? Well, uh, I was in a synth band too. I, I was I was right there with Terrace, and uh, it was me, Terrace, Kamaxi, and Joseph Weinberg. Uh huh. He was playing trumpet, and uh, Snoop. That was my first tour. That was my first actual tour riding on the tour bus. You know the whole thing. So uh, to be working with an artist who um, of, of that celebrity status and checking out his work ethic and how he does things. You, you really start to understand the nature of uh, how to how to construct things. I mean, it was one. I, I was really grateful to be there because, you know, uh, you would think about working with Snoop Dogg and be party time all the time. You know, <laughs> like hey, you know, and it, it, it half. Like, I want to say thirty percent of it was, mm-hmm. but the half of it was really uh, just professional. You know, because he had, he actually has a great work ethic and he does a good job with the team of people that he has. See, and that's I'm I'm I want to know about that because I feel like there's it's very easy to think of you know to imagine that you know he's got a manager who just kind of wakes him up and pushes him in the direction of the stage, but that's obviously bullshit because he's had like a multi-decade career, and <laughs> yeah. you know you don't get to have a career like that without being good at your job. So yeah, tell exactly. me about Snoop as boss. Okay, well, you know what? I'll tell you initially how we got the gig. Um, we started off doing a bunch of... Uh, well, well, what happened with Terrence Martin, who I explained earlier, who was, I met in high school, he got the opportunity to do some production for Snoop. You know, and, and Terrence is a great producer. He, he works heavy with a lot of the L.A. producers like Battle Cat and DJ Quick and all these guys. So him and Joseph are really great producers. So I'm saying all that to say that he got us a gig playing horns with Snoop's band because he, he wanted to really uh, pay some homage to a lot of the samples that he was putting in his music at the time. A lot of it was uh, George Clinton, you know, a lot of uh, Booty and the Rubber Band, you know, uh, a lot of these things that Snoop actually listens to. You would think that him being a rapper that he would listen to a lot of a lot of uh, rap all the time, especially gangster rap, but Snoop listen to all soul classics, doo-wop bands. I, I listen to more stylistics and dramatics hanging with Snoop than I did rappers. You know what I mean? <laughs> so <laughs> so it, it's just one of those things where he's heavy into the record collecting, and that was one of the biggest things that I, I enjoyed. But uh, how we got the job was we put together a band of, of really good guys. I mean, uh, Pup was in the band. He's from Snarky Puppy, down from down in Texas. Uh, he had a couple guys from Long Beach. Uh, Elo was slaying drums. Uh, little guy. Uh, everybody got all these fancy nicknames. Uh, even if I said the nicknames, you wouldn't know. But he got a band together, and we started off doing little one-nighters. You know, at the time MTV had a dollar concert. You know, uh, I don't know if you remember that, where you know the first people that could fit into the place would get in for a dollar. You know, mm-hmm. so they had a bunch of artists who would uh, contribute to that on MTV, and uh, we we did a big dollar concert in uh, Kentucky, I think. And you know, it was sold out. The band was hitting. We rehearsed a lot, and he had an MD uh, named Superfly, and along with all the other musicians, uh, who who really helped to get help us to know what Snoop was looking for. So when you say a sound, he he knows exactly what sound he wants. You know what I mean? So we go and we, we feel like we know music. I play jazz on it. It's time to put all of that away because 
we are just zeroing in on what it takes to play Snoopsy music right now. So, you know, it was just that type of thing where uh, after a while, if, if you really break down what it takes to play the funk and all of these different things and how to cater to what he was trying to do musically, then uh, it, it started to really shape how I write my music and how I interpret it. So make a long story short, we played this gig in Kentucky. He loves it. He loves the band concept. He puts on a meeting in the penthouse of the, the hotel we were staying at. We all group up in there at the end of the show and partying and everything. And we sit down at this big uh, business table. And he's like, and, and his manager, who has a relationship, like you mentioned, is totally uh, uh, them working together. You know what I mean? I think that it's never somebody waking them up and saying, hey, I mean, it, it probably is that too, but I think that it's, it's totally waking them up to do what he wants to do. Not, you know what I mean? It's not really facilitated by anything other than his own business that he's constructed. So mm-hmm. he, he, he's a real hard worker, you know, but he sat us down at this business table and, and they handed out uh, packets and of every tour date that we had, all of the information that we needed, every hotel we were staying at, times of planes, everything that we needed was in this one book, this laminated book that he gave us. 56 concert. It was, it was the Rock the Mic tour that we were doing at the time. He sat down and asked us if we wanted to do that. It was such a professional way of asking. And we had the book. Every question that we ever had, we needed to know about the tour, where we were going to stay, where we were going to go, was right there in the book. It was so professional. And it never deviated from that. It never did. So, you know, I, I really appreciated just being there. I was only 21 years old at the time. So it was like, you know, it was a big deal to me to be able to see things uh, roll out in that fashion from somebody who uh, is perceived to be like some brandless. You know, it's it just like, yeah, I think that it, it, it rips the cover off of what you think about people, and it makes you think about how much uh, where you're from and how you raised is by default. Yeah, you know I mean, saying? if you think about it, like somebody at his level has to have their life planned like two, three years out. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, looking at it from a, a youngster's perspective, it, it's things that happen then that I'm still learning today. And, uh, you know, it, it really challenged a lot at that time when I was a youngster about what you think you want. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because sometimes <laughs> you <laughs> you think you want all of these things and you realize you can't handle all of that. And you're happy being just what you were. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I, I think that, you know, it was a beautiful experience. And after a while, um, you know, as, as time evolved, and we were just promoting the record that he had. So everybody was evolving and changing. And I think a lot of the musicians that he had were such great uh, band leaders and, and, and writers themselves that these, these are guys that you still hear about, you know. But, of course, was a great member of the many bands. He has Ghost Note, which is his band, and then he's got Snarky Puppy, which he was part of. And You know, he, he comes from a whole legacy of great musicians from Texas, and, and uh, you know, it, it's just great to be able to connect with all of those guys at the time we did. So That, that was kind of the one thing, and then I played with Al McKay, and Al McKay was a big uh, 
you know, he was part of the whole Earth, Wind, and Fire movement, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, I don't know what happened legally with that group, but they split into two bands, and I was part of the Earth, Wind, and Fire experience. You know what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So, so that, was, that was a cool gig, and then I was with the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra with um, Clayton and Jeff Hamilton, and we did a... a he had a big band where he made these arrangements, and we did multiple records with Diana Crawl and Blue Blay and with, uh, with Dana Owens or Queen Latifah and, and uh, other people. I, I worked with Aretha Franklin, and we did uh, Jay Leno and House of Blues for a couple weeks, you know. So it, it, I've had uh, beautiful opportunities. I worked with Heavy D, and me and Kamasi have done some, some records with, with Jay Z. You know, it, it's been a beautiful and fruitful, uh, you know, route that we've been taking. You know, and, and the thing about it is that uh, it's, it's all peaks and valleys. And I think that it, it's all about just breaking down the walls. I mean, the last six years, we've traveled so much. You mm-hmm. think about it like less than a year, less than a year ago almost, I was in Hong Kong. I was in. China. I was, you know, what I mean, I have pictures of me being at, you know, I was there. So it's just like I was seeing protest lines. I was seeing a lot of things happening, not even on the news, just driving past in the winter van. You know what I mean? So it's, it really is a wide range of people that are connected to the musical world, that believe in uh, the artist street, and you know that we do, that that have knocked down a whole bunch of walls for me. And it changed my whole world, you know, about how I view things and how I view the culture and all of these things. It, it just really makes me look into people like Coltrane and people that planted the seeds for me to be able to do this in the first place a little bit closer. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you about this live record, the one that's mm-hmm. either just out or it's coming out like in a week or so. Um, right, right. It's your your fourth record, but uh, you said it was recorded on your first European tour, like as a headliner, I guess, because you must have gone over with Kamasi a couple of times before that. Oh yeah, yeah. I've been going to Europe since 2002 with so many different bands, you know, and uh, that's that's really what made this special, this tour special, because uh, you know finally I was going under my own name. So uh, this record which was probably uh, the fastest record I ever put out, too. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, I want to ask about that after. Because, okay. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, it was it was recorded last October. So was this, right. was this like, did you know in advance that this was the gig you were going to record, or did you record a bunch of gigs and say, okay, that's the one? Like, what, you know, what happened? Yeah. Well, so what happened was that we, one of the best things, and I feel like making a record, and I've had experience with doing this from, like I mentioned, the Clayton Hamilton Orchestra, uh, we would go out and do a tour, and then toward the end of it, when everybody, you know, or once you're in the groove of the tour, would, you know, start to check out the recordings that we did, and just kind of see what, if we sniff into some patches that we can keep, you know what I mean, like, you know, what, what did somebody do behind somebody's solo that we might want to do again tonight? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we always were just kind of, I, I always like to record every night. So 
just to review just for that reason. So we were recording every night. But while we were over in Paris, um, there was a couple things that happened. Uh, Like I said, it was my first tour. I'm I'm really, like, excited. I've been there multiple times, but now things are kind of more directed at me. It really made me uh, knock down a lot of walls as far as, like, me having any type of insecurity in my music or anything because the level of support was through the roof. You know what I mean? It was like so much support there that that it was just amazing. So I started feeling that from the first day. We started off in Bordeaux, France, and then we uh, four days into it is where we got to New Morning. And by this point, the music is just growing and changing. The level of musicians that we had with Kamasi Washington and Jamani Smith Tony Austin and Miles Mosley and Brandon Coleman. These are all seasoned veterans and my friends. So mm-hmm. I've been knowing all these guys for a long time, and I think it's made it really almost telepathic. Like everybody was relieved to be playing this music and really happy to be out there and just, just you know, it was it was very good vibe. So uh, Roy's birthday, Roy Hargrove, is a huge influence on me. You know, as far as musically and just. I met him when I was about 16, and I think I'm the type of learner that learns best when I see people doing what I want to do. You know what I mean? It's one thing to learn from a book, but if you can go to a place where you, like if you're a barber, you can learn from reading a book about cutting hair, or you can go to a barbershop and watch the barber every day. You know, and then you try it. So I think that that was what Roy was to me. He was like um, a big influence, so... Uh, I met him there, and, and we started a, a friendship. And uh, when I moved to New York, we I was still checking him out, just really impressed by the recordings and the level of musicianship that he had for himself. And uh, you know, we had a good friendship. So when he passed, you know, it, it took me a while to even recognize it was for real, because it's just like same thing with Kobe. You know, here's this guy who, to me, was a you know a champion. And uh, so, so you know, it's hard to believe he was doing so. There's a, a year after his death, and I'm standing in one of his favorite clubs, and they have a huge picture of him on the wall. So I decided to, to dedicate that night to Roy Hargrove, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's why we started off with, uh, with Strasbourg, St. Denis, you know, and uh, homage to him. And also in, we paid homage to Igal Five, I keep saying her name. It's hard to say her name, but she is the owner of New Morning, and just a, a, a well-respected public figure in in the creative art world of Paris. And she's been there for a long time. She's invited so many great musicians to her play with Dizzy Gillespie, our Blakey. You know what I mean? It's a huge host of phenomenal musicians who have recorded records in her play. And she passed the week before, you know, and her daughter who runs the place was telling me about it. And, uh, you know, I could tell that they were really mourning, you know. So I think that that's one of the things that made that night of the tour, my very first tour, so special was that I can contribute to, to help, you know, to pay homage, to bring closure. And, and uh, you can hear it in the audience. People were loving it. They needed to hear that song because they missed Roy. They needed somebody to, to acknowledge the passing of this, this beautiful figure in Paris. So it, it, it was, that was the height of, of the tour for me. Mm-hmm. You know, 
made this record so special. The the energy on the record is really it's 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 surprising to me. I mean the 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 energy level is like even as someone who's familiar with you know this band's work and has seen you know you guys you and Kamasi uh, twice. You know, I saw you at the Blue Note in New York in 2015 with the night Thundercat played with you. And then oh, yeah, yeah. I was also at the Forest Hills show, uh, the sta- the outdoor show, when you guys opened for Alt-J in 2018. Oh, yeah, I was yeah. at that one as well. So, I mean, I've seen you guys a couple of times, but this, the solos on this record might be some of the, like, the rawest and noisiest I've ever heard from Kamasi. And, I mean, the whole energy of the band is just out there on this record yeah <laughs> you know like what what brought that out of you guys on that on that night because i mean he's in like a like a david murray zone at times you know yeah. he's, he's like way out there <laughs> <laughs> well you know what i think that it is um a, a mutual love for each other's music i'll, I'll you see for the last couple of years i could be playing Kamasi's music i mean of course we play other Compositions in our concerts, and you've seen that. But, yeah, at the Blue uh, the Note, part, you played Os Calypso, your tune. Yeah, yeah. So we, we definitely feature each other's music and give it more of a variety. But uh, in, in LA, we we have had a lot of residencies, but one of the more consistent ones was the Piano Bar, and that was a place in Hollywood, a little small place, probably capacity of two fifty, where we sat there, and instead of rehearsing in a rehearsal hall. We would rehearse in front of people at the bar. It, it was for free. I mean, we wasn't making stuff, but it was a play to, a, a place to play in front of people. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that uh, sometimes, you know, I, just being in one setting all the time, just having it, the band condensed a little bit helps. And then we don't get a chance to really tap on all of my songs all the time. And some of those songs, Kamasi really loves to play, as you can see. And a lot of those guys really like to play. And it really sounds amazing over them. And they're written for the intent, like uh, for, for improvisation to be, to be uh, not for you not to want to stop playing. You know, I think that there's a lot of songs that are written and a lot of composers who write songs based off of improvisation. Like Joe Henderson, prime mm-hmm. example is, uh, you know, all of his songs really, but one of my favorites is In the Rage. And the way he wrote that song is, is with tension and relief. And I write a lot, of, I try to write a lot of my songs with that, you know, but just based off of the songs that feel good to play on, you know, so I think you feel the combination of the, the intent of making a song that feels good to solo on, and then the growth of these phenomenal musicians just kind of snowballing it into a big melting pot of, of creativity with their, their own imagination. It, it, it was really beautiful. It exceeded everything in my imagination that I thought it was going to be every night. <laughs> you know what I mean? These guys, like, pop my top every night. I was like, damn. Like, I even mentioned it on the video. I thought Kamasi was going to start levitating. I was like, <laughs> man, you, I would not be surprised if you just started flying right now. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it, I, was, I was happy every night, and it was just a beautiful uh, interaction with the audience, you know, and just, on the first tour, just meeting the people that really like my music, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing, man. So I didn't, I didn't have a bad day <laughs> at all, you know. And it, 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 
really stains your heart and your mind because when you sit there at the end of the show and talk to these people, uh, you know, these, these uh, beautiful listeners who found your music on their own personal time, you know what I mean? It's, it's a different connection, and it changes your world, and it knocks down your perception of what you thought the world was and fills it in with what the world really is. You know, and I know at this time in the news, we've been seeing one perspective of how things going on, but I think it's a huge, huge number of people who who want love and unity and peace, you know, and they're just not necessarily on TV. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know you can agree with that because uh, me being from Hollywood, that's one of the things that, ch- that shapes who the real celebrities are and who the real uh, people who penetrate society in a positive way are and they're not necessarily on tv you know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it seems like your your studio records both the optimist and force for good are both they're made up of like multiple sessions stretching over a period of years like yeah. why do why do you prefer to work that way and how do you maintain consistency when you're recording a track and then putting it alongside something that you recorded like four years earlier? Well, you know what? I think that that is uh, it shows kind of the name of of the record because it takes a lot of optimism. I think that when you look at the amount of uh, support that I had, you know, especially coming from the, the West Coast, um, it just wasn't really easy to get a record deal. You know, especially in 2008, I, I, I can't say that anybody was checking out Kamasi or Thundercat, you know, Paris. Nobody was really checking us out on a, on a, on a mass level, like, before we did the Pimp the Butterfly, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, me holding on to these records was it was me being optimistic that one day I would be able to put it out and reach people, you know, and I think that all of us were, had developed this kind of work ethic that was instilled in us to work hard and, and try to attain these things. But uh, I think that it's just the level of consistency was brought on by the musicians around me too. I think that it was constantly uh, people reminding me, man, you should put this music out. That was really good. That was good. You know, whatever happened to that song, you know, and I always, saying, hey, man, just, you know, there'll be a time where everybody wants to hear, you know, and there was a lot of encouragement, so uh, when I got the opportunity to meet Kev and Alpha Pub, and, and these are the guys who were at one point affiliated with the Brain Feeder thing, you know, but uh, he's, he's a digital distributor, and, and I took my music over him, and my first record was the, the, the nursery rhyme record, the children's record. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, <laughs> and I felt like that was a important one to put out uh, because that was a project that I worked with my kids to conceptualize and to also just kind of raise the the musical bar on what they're giving our kids to listen to, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> a little bit because I I, just, I don't know if you have kids that are sitting around with two two heroes all the time listening to little, little xylophones and stuff all day. I love xylophones but the music is so watered down that it doesn't really help with their, their attention span or the information they retain. Like, I feel like in India and, and Brazil and other places, Japan, they have all these long, extensive melodies that have counterpuntal lines, 
all these different things where these kids are actually singing these melodies. And I feel like our kids could take in that too. So I wanted I to write some notes. I have thought for years, and I've mentioned this to other musicians, I've, I've thought for years that you could absolutely play Thelonious Monk or Ornette Coleman for little kids, and they would be into it like instantly. I'm living proof. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, Thelonious Monk has that like sort of Muppet show kind of quality in a way. You know, no disrespect oh, yeah. to the man who was a genius, but like, there's definitely something childlike about the melodies and the style of playing the piano and stuff like that. And the same oh, thing man. with Ornette. He has that like jumpy, upbeat kind of energy to what he's doing that a little kid can immediately relate to that. Yes, totally. And I think that that's one of the great things about uh, both of those artists you mentioned is that. They understand that the, the human mind is complex anyway, so we want to keep it simple as possible, you know? And I think that a lot of their stuff derives from simplicity, and uh, that what that is what brought out the improvisation so much more because they had so many more options with, with their expertise to deal with when it's simple, you know? <laughs> so uh, I appreciate that, and I uh, definitely made it with that intent that they are aware of more than adults give them credit for sometimes, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did you pitch that idea to all the other people who played on the record? Like, did they give you a look when you explained the concept or were they on board right away? <laughs> like what, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I realized when you do things like that, because it came with puppets too. And there's puppet videos, the whole nine. What I realized is that, when you make a move like that, you always have to have the product there to show. Because if you try to paint a picture and don't have nothing to show, it sounds absolutely nuts. So I had to write music and do some pre-produced tracks and do some singing on those pre-produced tracks to let them know how it would sound first. And then they were like, oh, that's cool. But when I explained it to them without having all that stuff, they were like, uh okay, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> but uh, you know, after a while, people started to contribute. Like Taylor Graves, he he was like, "Man, I'm with you. Look, this song gonna be perfect." You know, so it, it was definitely something that uh, after people saw the vision, they were into, and uh, I got a, a full amount of support with it. You know. Mhm. Mm mhm. So, how long after the Optimist came out did you start putting together Force for Good? So I think that the Optimist came out 2017, mm -hmm. and that's almost 10 years after I initially made more than half of the things on there. So I think that me having that record and walking around with it under my arm for 10 years, hoping that it would come out you know, was one of the things that I, I just started to, like, get that type of mentality, you know, and I just started to put other songs aside, too. So I would start recording all the time and have all these songs but not necessarily have it for any record. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just kind of making a little little bolt of songs that I'm working on just, just to really uh, hopefully one day put out. But it's no pressure because I can keep going back and just, you know, checking them out. 
And uh, I think that's where the force for good came from. It was like a lot of songs that I, I really felt a certain way about, and I recorded them. And, and every time we recorded, it was kind of a round robin situation where it wouldn't just be my music that we were recording because we were a collective. So we would record one of Miles' songs, one of Kamasi's songs, one of Brandon's songs, one of Cameron's. You know what I mean? Somebody's mm-hmm. songs. In, in that day too, so we would do one of my songs and do somebody else's song, do two, three other songs. And it would be more of that type of mindset. It was like nobody really know what record they're gonna put it on. We just know that we all have today off. And <laughs> you know, I'm feeling the right this one song that I love. So if you down to do it, let's do it. And I think that after listening to the energy of it and thinking about the time and the social climate and how those songs made me feel, I think that that was uh, one of the things that we put together Force for Good, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is there ever going to be a physical version? Because when it first came out, Eric told me, yeah, yeah, we're going to, we're, you know, there will be a CD or something, you know, at some point. But, I mean, is there going to be a physical release or is it going to stay digital? And is this in, is that true of the live record as well? Like, will there be a physical version? Oh, yeah. No, there's, there's definitely been a physical version and there there has been. I've held it. <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I want to stay connected and I will make sure that you get one because, you know, it, it exists. It's been here for almost a year and a half. So I, I apologize if it hasn't been made transparent on how to get one. And I feel like uh, we got to fix that band camp site, make sure it's easy for people to get. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but the live record will also be on vinyl. I just wanted to, to say that as well. Oh, you know, cool. It, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You, I mean, we talked earlier about the Snoop thing and kind of getting an inside look at how that, you know, how the world of big touring works, where it's like, you know, 60 dates all lined up in a row, and here's what you're going to be doing for the next 18 months, you know, or whatever. Right, yeah. So scale that down just a little bit and tell me what that feels like when you're doing it with Kamasi's band, you know, like, and and how it felt to kind of start out as nobody's from L.A. and have the music reach the people that it did. Because, I mean, like I said, I saw you at the Blue Note in 2015. Then I did not go, but you came back like a less than a year later, I feel like, and you guys played Webster Hall which I remember talking about on Twitter. I said, you guys are in the big room at Webster Hall, which holds more people than the top 10 jazz clubs in Manhattan combined because the Vanguard holds like 100 people. The Blue Note holds like 150 people. You know, it's it's like all the rooms that everybody's heard of. And then you guys were playing this theater that held like 1,000 or 1,500, you know. So, I mean, yeah. what, what does that even feel like as a jazz musician, <laughs> you know? I think one of the things that I can't help from doing in that situation is look back down the pipe at us playing for empty coffee houses for just the staff. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think that <laughs> it, it's been plenty of times where we've been in that situation and the music is in our... Uh, our interaction together is what really becomes the focal point, you know? And uh, to have so many people, I'll tell you what happened. We, we were all 
employing ourselves with different artists. I was, we, you know, that were and contributing to different areas of the music in LA with Ronald Bruner, with Kamasi, with all of the guys in the band. We got all doing recordings and playing with different artists. So for us, us to come together and use what we've been using for everybody else, for ourselves, feels great. You know what I mean? For Thundercat to finally work on a record for himself is beautiful. You know what I mean? For You know, all these guys have such great contributions. So uh, I think that that was one of the things that I was grateful for. But, uh, you know, I think... Uh, I don't want to lose sight of the question. What was the question? Again? Just talk about you know the the feeling of seeing the audience oh, grow. Yeah. And, you so know. yeah. So Kendrick Lamar, that was a huge, huge part of what created uh, uh, kind of an anomaly. You know, I feel like that happened because he already had a following. And I, I loved the, the Mad City album. You know, before that, and I, I like him when he was K-Dot and all of this stuff. You know, so uh, once again, Terrace Martin, he came on the scene and he was doing his production with Kendrick already and facilitated a relationship to where uh, they wanted to try some different things. I know as a, a producer, you know, uh, when you look at the legacy of producers that you have, with Jay Dillas, with Master Jay, Dr. Dre, all of these great guys, they have a legacy for taking samples from records, you know, from, mm-hmm. from, you know, and creating a new way to utilize that, you know, and it's beautiful. But I think that when you take the two worlds and put them together, you take a, a track that let's fantasize that Jay Dillard does, you, you get a group of musicians that are capable of taking their track and incorporating the jazz mentality or the, the improvisation mentality in a way that opens it up and creates another place for it to go. That's kind of pimp the butterfly. You know, we sat with some amazing producers and, and we orchestrated a way to make everybody's uh, gifts make the music go somewhere else. You know, so I think uh, that was the beautiful part about it, the, the recording. But what the recording sparked was a new set of listeners that were listening and open to this music to really get a reintroduction to, to jazz. And say, okay, I know I like that record, and you know I like the musician. Let me see who the musicians were, and people were actually checking out these credits. And of course, Kamasi's name was the first one up there that, you know, which he contributed uh, a lot to string arrangements and, and all types of stuff. You know, uh, in the time that we did the Pimp Butterfly, and um, when he came out with the Epic, we got a huge amount of support from a lot of Kendrick fans or a lot of people that were younger or didn't necessarily uh, know what to view jazz to be at that time, especially from the West Coast. So uh, that gave us an opportunity to uh, have listeners that would have never, ever listened to us in the first place actually give us some listening. And while they did, we we, uh, were ready to really show them that we were worth listening to. You know, it wasn't just hype, you know. So by the time we got to New York, we were we were burning up to be there. I, I went to Manhattan School of Music, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I was in New York in the '90s. So for me to come back to New York, play Blue Note, see the line wrapped around the corner, and go to Western Hall and see the line, I mean, that, those are big deals to me. And I was there, and it was just like I was in 
for the first couple of years, I just could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe the amount of influence and uh, the impact that we were having on the jazz community. People had to tell me from the outside, because from the inside, it was like, we were showing up to all these places and it sold out. And it's like, it is just, just, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's shocking. <laughs> it's fascinating to me because it was a weird shock for me because I have been steeped in jazz world for so for a long time kind of and so the Kendrick connection didn't really impact my musical universe you know and so when mm -hmm. people were t when people were talking to me and saying oh people are interested in Kamasi because he's you know he was on Kendrick's record I'm like really that matters like you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I like know to me, I, it, it's just an alternate universe, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I grew, yeah. I'm, I'm significantly older than you. So, like, I grew up with hip-hop, but the hip-hop that I grew up with was, like, 88 to 92, kind of. Or 86 when it was to, fun. Like 92, you know? So That was party fun, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's taking a transition, like, then, too. Like, mm -hmm. for real. But I, I totally understand what you're talking about. So it was, yeah, but I mean, at that Blue Note show, I was I was overhearing people's conversations, and there was, like, young people there who were not sure that they were, like, behaving properly for a jazz club. Like, they didn't know how to how to go to a jazz club, you know? It was pretty funny. So It, it, it is, and we were trying to do the same thing, you know, because we had never been used to that amount of attention for what we were doing so we were trying to fit into the whole thing as well you know and uh the acceptance made it great and i think that it was a uh uh reintroduction for a lot of people especially the younger people that didn't know they were into live music you know uh and also that helped us to get in a lot of festivals that we would have never ever played mm -hmm. ever like Glastonbury. That's probably one of the biggest festivals, you know, that I've ever played. You yeah, know, two hundred fifty thousand <laughs> just like, <laughs> yeah. and uh, just be out there and feel that amount of support from. Uh, a, I, I see people that are old there that enjoying it. I see young people there. I see everybody, and it's just such a beautiful thing that 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 was. Uh, one of the best things I, that I felt like could ever happen was that, you know, we could have been in a situation where we would actually go to places that weren't jazz festivals and that had no idea what we come to do and actually be introduced them to something that they didn't even know that they were into. <laughs> they said, okay, is this what jazz is? Now they start checking out jazz and showing up to Blue Note and all these different places, you know what I mean? So it's, it, it's a beautiful uh, way to to facilitate relationships as far as people who love music, you know. I feel like a big part of it is that you guys, all of you collectively, know how to put on a show and be entertaining, you know? It's, it's not like when you go to a jazz club and there's four dudes up there and everybody is staring at their sheet music, you know? There's, <laughs> right. there's definitely something there. There's like a you know, there's an entertaining vibe to it, you know, and a welcoming sort of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it's, it's like I said, with the level of intent from playing at 
at places that were empty, it becomes about more of your therapy. <laughs> you know, what I mean? your music becomes your therapy. You know, and it's like you're letting <laughs> you're letting people in on your therapy now. So it's just like when you have a show, it's like you're inviting them to an hour and a half of how you tolerate living in the world. You know what I mean? And how you do it with beautiful music and relaxing, meditative things, and of course laughter. You know what I mean? But I think that when you accept the acceptance is one of the things that people want. You know, and when you come to a show, you want to feel accepted. You you paid to be there. You're giving your support. You want to feel like, you know, let, let me get into this meditation and with you, this musical meditative moment, and uh, leave feeling feeling good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The titles of your albums you know the optimist and force for good it kind of says something about your philosophy creatively speaking so i mean tell me you know talk to me about that like your optimism and is is there a place for optimism right now or how you know is it more difficult to maintain optimism you know at the moment than well i think it is more difficult to maintain Optimism. I think that when I think about um, the legacy of people who had to maintain a level of optimism, we had we are able to look back at their contributions a little bit. You know what I mean? Like Force for Good, that was out of tribute to John Coltrane, his, his legacy, and him making the uh, uh, honest choice that his best contribution wasn't really to get out. And riot, you know, his best contribution was to do what he was already doing and put his whole heart and self into that. And hopefully that that could penetrate, you know, a little bit more than what he could do on the street. And it did. You know what I mean? I think that that's one of the things that impacted me from that whole story. You know, and there's a lot of people that's just like that, you know. But uh, I think that this whole thing came way before George Floyd, or, or, or I, I think as far as equality. I think that it's been something that has been uh, an uphill battle in America for a long time. And I think that the title of my record is just try to, to maintain hope. And then think about that whole John Coltrane legacy. How can I take my best assets and put them towards something that can be medicine to somebody who's uh, in a lot of pain? You know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that when you think about what we've been talking about and the connections that we've made in music that go outside of the art world, um, you know, one of the things about community and life is that you don't always see people honoring people for doing good. You know, a lot of times people get real normalistic to people doing good. You know what I mean? And it's just like, no, nobody really pays attention to that because that's not dramatic enough. It's not entertaining. You know what I mean? Sometimes chaos and all these things are entertaining and, and you can miss all of the good things that people are celebrating, all of the love that's happening, the babies, and all of these different beautiful things that are happening that are happening at a much higher rate. You know what I mean? Like, it's, more, it's actually more beautiful stuff going on been more negative stuff but we just pay more attention to the negativity and we've been at home under quarantine watching all of it kind of obsessing over it so that's kind of what it makes us feel like that's it but that's not it like the the level of people that really want love and unity in the world outnumbers what we see and what we think 
that's going on. So I feel very optimistic about things, about, uh, you know, sometimes things are uh, bittersweet, you know, and bitter about what, what's happening with the violence, you know, but I think it's, it's one step more to just trying to uh, help us to live together in a more uh, cohesive, equal way, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, that that won't hurt, especially when you got people trying to raise babies and have families, go to concerts and do all of this stuff. You know what I mean? It's like it, it'll only make easier in, in this situation to look at the work we've already done to put toward that and not really make it seem like we haven't already. You know, I think that, you know, now we're just kind of focusing on the negative stuff. And, that's cool. you know, we've covered a lot of ground, even though it don't look like it. You know what I mean? But you know, it's a resilient, consistent group of people that are constantly doing positive things that aren't necessarily on TV, you know what I mean, in the public eye, that are uh, made it their life to contribute to this planet in the best way possible. So I think that, you know, just because they're not in the limelight, because they don't get the media attention and all of that, doesn't mean that they're not there. And that's what keeps me optimistic, because I'm here. I'm one of those people, and you are. So, you know, I think that there's a number of people that are, that are definitely here to, to uh, kind of help to support and fix the problem in a peaceful way and, and for us to get back out there and, and make a place for our kids to be. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I remain optimistic. I remain optimistic. Okay, that was my conversation with Ryan Porter, and that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if so, I hope you'll consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to improve the website and the show, so visit patreon.com slash burningambulance and throw us $5 a month if you can. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one.